0: Welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. Today we are continuing our series in Revelation, exploring the critical questions which shape our reading of this unique and fascinating biblical text. Our focus today is Revelation 13 and answering the question, who are the two beasts of Revelation? As you might have already guessed, these two beasts are not good guys. They're not heroes in the story. They're actually pretty significant villains, major antagonists in this revelation that John received. In this sermon, we're going to unpack who these beasts are, what they claim, and what they do. But to be clear from the start, we're not just going to do this because the beasts sound cool or because their bad guys and stories are always interesting. We're going to do so while remembering the critical premise of this entire series, This revelation was given and recorded to bless and encourage believers, to drive them to the hope and security found in Christ alone. As we're going to learn today, recognizing, understanding, and contextualizing our great foe isn't just an intellectual exercise or a fun journey into Christian apocalyptic lore. It's an element of being able to rightly, faithfully, and wisely endure the hostility of our enemy. But as we dive in, let's first think about how devious villains can really be. Think about villains in your favorite movies and stories and what they're like. Black hooded figures with red menacing lightsabers or dark lords who reside in dark spiky towers or large purple men with magical stones who rant about destroying half the population of the universe. Sometimes the villains are super honest. They're straight up, and they present themselves as villains. The way they dress, speak, and do their evil deeds openly for all to see. But villains aren't always like that. Thinking about our favorite stories again, sometimes villains go above and beyond to initially present themselves as heroes, saviors, good powerful people that you can trust. That's something we see in stories all the time. One of my favorite examples is Lotso from Toy Story 3. Lotso stands for Lots-O-Hugging Bear and as his name suggests when we meet this character we see a cute pink cuddly bear. He's an older toy in the story and when Woody and the gang meet him he's a wise toy. He carries a cane and he's been around the daycare play center for a long time and seemingly he wants to do uh, his best to make the other toys feel welcome and comfortable in this new space. But as the story progresses, after Lotso has earned the trust of the toys, got them right where he wants them to be, he reveals who he truly is. Lotso isn't the cuddly old bear who takes younger toys under his wing. He's actually a cruel tyrant who runs the daycare toys like a warden of a corrupt prison camp. He's brutal. He's cunning. He's abusive and manipulative. He's a classic villain through and through. But his reign of terror wasn't obvious from the beginning. He was always the villain, that's his character, that's he always was evil, but he first presented himself as a trustworthy deliverer. This is a common trope in stories, the bad guy who pretends to be good. But We should realize this is a popular theme in stories because this is a theme with real life villains throughout history. Think about the evil dictators, the wicked cult leaders, the most successful con men of the ages. They get away with so much while being evil, brutal, horrific villains, because they did their utmost to present themselves as heroes. The most powerful villains are the ones who do their best in convincing people they're not villains at all. And that's something we see in our passage today. As we examine who these two beasts are, we need to discuss a few things. First, who these villains really are. What is their true identity and character? Second, how do they present themselves? Like the greatest villains, they conceal who they really are. And third, what do they, while they might pretend to be good, what do they really do? What is it that we can see? And finally, after unpacking who these beasts are, we're going to discuss what it means for me and you, how recognizing and understanding our enemy shapes our lives in the here and now, how we're called to endurance and wisdom, and ultimately to see the beauty, wonder, and absolute superiority of Jesus Christ, our hero. But let's dive in. Who is the first beast? Follow with me as I read Revelation 13, 1-10. That's Revelation 13, 1-10. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And To it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. On one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. The first beast is a violent oppressor a violent oppressor. Its appearance communicates so much about its identity and character. First, we see that this beast is rising out of the sea. It's a sea monster, the sea being a consistent apocalyptic image of evil. It's the abyss, a place of darkness, chaos, and untold evils. This beast, this sea monster emerges from the depths of evil. And how does it appear? First, we're told it has ten horns, with seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns. This beast resembles the dragon of Revelation 12, the great evil who sent it forth, its dark master. And on its head, the beast carries blasphemous names, visible, profane declaration of its intent to oppose God, to assault his name, to usurp his power. From there, we're given a physical description of the beast. It's a grotesque, vile, unnatural combination of predators. It's a leopard mixed with a bear mixed with a lion. It's a horrible, a stomach-churning sight to behold. It speaks of its character, of its, this beast. It's grotesque, vile, and villainous. But there's more to this imagery. This mix of animals is actually meant to draw us back to Daniel 7. In Daniel's vision, he saw various beasts brutal, destructive predators who also came up from the sea. Among them were a lion, a bear and a leopard. And in Daniel, we're also told what those beasts meant in the vision. They weren't literal animals opposing God's people. In Daniel seven seventeen, we learn that the four great beasts are the four great kings who shall arise out of the earth. Most scholars of the Bible agree that the lion is a symbol of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. The bear is the Persian Empire, and the leopard is the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great and its various successor states. All in all, these are great conquering empires which sought to oppose God by asserting their own dominance over the world. I'll say that again. The beasts in Daniel were symbols of the great empires that sought to usurp God by asserting their own dominance over the world. So going back to Revelation 13, who is the first beast? Well, with Daniel in mind, we see that this beast is a crude amalgamation of the beasts associated with those empires. Therefore, this mixed-together beast in Revelation is meant to be a symbol of every world leader, every empire that sought and seeks to oppose God by exerting their own blasphemous vision of dominance. The vile, grotesque beast is a symbol of every power that opposes God and seeks its own glory. But how does it seek its own glory? Look at how the beast presents itself. Verse 3. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. This beast presents itself as a Christ, as a Messiah. Worked into its persona is a concept of near-death and dramatic resurrection. When you think the beast is done for, it comes back with a vengeance. And people are amazed by this. They'll see this and marvel, wonder, and be in awe. The beast who claims to be the Messiah keeps coming back. People are constantly enamored by that. They'll treat it and follow it like God. Look at verse 4. At the beast's beckoning, people will sing hymns of worship to the dragon and the beast. If you stop to think about it, the entire agenda of the first beast is to be a parody a cheap imitation, a counterfeit of Christ. Take this in. The beast is sent by the dragon to accomplish a mission of domination. An evil imitation of Jesus being sent by the Father to accomplish a mission of deliverance. The beast receives authority from the dragon, much like how Christ receives authority from the Father. The beast seems to have a mortal wound, but is healed and uses that to manipulate people. This is suspiciously like Christ, who was actually killed and rose from the dead to save people. People worship the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? This sounds dangerously similar to Exodus fifteen eleven, which praises God by saying, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? The first beast is a ravenous, power-hungry enemy who presents himself as the Messiah going so far as to blasphemously imitate the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. The beast is a parody, a counterfeit Christ. But what does the beast do while presenting himself to be the Messiah? The beast does what is consistent with its character. Take in verses 5 to 7. In the time that is given, the same symbolic 42-month period we've been reading about throughout Revelation, the beast will blaspheme God and his dwelling, make war on the saints, and exert dominance over the peoples of the earth. The beast, by its character and actions, is a violent oppressor. He will persecute the people of God and dominate all others. In verse 8, we learn that everyone except for those whose names are written in the book of life, will worship this beast. It's violent, it's oppressive, it's powerful, and without the lamb there is no hope of resisting it. The beast is the superpower who keeps coming back and wooing the masses to worship him. The blasphemous parody who brings war against the church. And when you take in all these points together, the beast being every empire that opposes God, the beast who parodies Christ in resurrections, the beast that dominates and persecutes. You can see how the beast has been, is, and will be ever uh, with active throughout all of history. For John's audience, the beast was clearly the emperors of Rome, men who falsely claimed divinity to be gods of the world, who ruthlessly persecuted the church in the name of civic order and justice. And just when you thought they were gone, the next emperor would take his place. In our recent world history, you can think of the dictators of the 20th century, the strong men of Europe. They wooed their nations, promising to bring glory and power. But what did they do? Think of Hitler, think of Stalin. They promised great things, appeared like messiahs coming at the perfect time. They exerted dominance. While they might not have called it worship, That's exactly what they demanded. Perfect obedience and conformity, which eventually led to oppression for the masses and persecution for the church. And when one dies, the next fills his place. The beast lives on. The mortal wound is healed and the people marvel. Hitler and Stalin were preceded by Napoleon and King Leopold of Belgium. They were followed by Pol Pot and Idi Amin. The first beast is a violent oppressor who keeps coming back. But remember, he presents himself as a hero, as a Messiah, someone worthy to be worshipped. Remember that. The beast is playing to, willing to play the long game. But now that you know, recognize it early. The disguise will be devious, but it will end with domination and persecution for the church. That's the first beast. But now, let's move on to the second. Follow with me as I read verses 11 to 18. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. The second beast is a powerful deceiver. A powerful deceiver. Let's start our examination of this beast by noting a few points of similarity. As the first beast came out of the sea, this beast rises out of the earth. Likewise, this points us back to Daniel 7 and the kings who are said to arise out of the earth. The beast of the sea and the beast of the land are intimately connected in their identity and purpose. And like the first beast, this second beast plays fully into the Trinitarian parody taking place. While the first beast pretends to be a Christ, this second beast is a mocking imitation of the Holy Spirit. Let's unpack that. This beast exercises all the authority of the first beast. It appears, and this is critical, like a lamb, but speaks like a dragon. And its mission, plain and simple, to make the people of the earth worship the first beast. This is clearly a direct parody of Christ sending the Holy Spirit, who is also called the Spirit of Truth, or the Spirit of Christ, to strengthen and help his people, to lead them to the truth of God. Yet, where the Holy Spirit brings truth and genuine worship, this beast, this counterfeit, brings deception which leads to idolatry and that's where we see how the two beasts complement each other. While the first beast represents the martial power of the kingdoms, this beast represents the religious and social deception that comes along with the enemy's blasphemous power grab. While one beast attacks with the sword, this beast attacks with its words. It looks like a lamb but speaks like a dragon. A deceptive voice influencing, prodding, undermining, and persuading people to the false worship of the first beast. But how does this beast do that? How does it deceive so effectively? Verse 13 tells us this beast has genuine power. The beast will perform signs and wonders. It will make fire come down from heaven. A vivid and powerful mockery of what the Holy Spirit accomplished at Pentecost. The term great signs brings to mind the glorious and devastating plagues of Egypt, the miracles of Christ. These are genuine marvels, and people will be convinced by them, deceived by them, totally won over by them. The beast puts to shame even the most talented magicians, mythical wizards, or, in our day, the most charismatic tech leaders. Its method is wonders, but its true power is the social pressure it is able to generate bringing together its appearance of a lamb and its power to create signs, this beast and its mission to promote the idolatry of the first beast will be a convincing influencer. It will create systems of social dynamics, cultural assumptions, traditional values that people are pressured to conform to. This pressure to conform might even be so winsome that people will beg for it. They will be so utterly captivated by the beast, its smooth words, its great signs, that they will be willing to accept his mark. This being a way of saying they will perhaps gladly and knowingly buy into its systems, its proposed way of life, its blasphemous visions of the world and worship. This beast is a powerful deceiver, and that shouldn't be a surprise. For as it says in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. This, again, we see time and time again throughout history. Political leaders latching on to religious or cultural icons to support their agenda. Dictators relying heavily upon propaganda officers and campaigns. The absolute monarchs of old Europe allied themselves with popes and bishops to craft doctrines and dogmas suggesting that political and social conformity was tantamount to spiritual health. Leaders today have their own celebrity friends, their tech gurus, their pop educators, and host of other lackeys to promote their agenda. They have people who will justify their rule socially. They have agents who will create entire systems, trends, ways of thinking and speaking to push people away from God and into their hands. Think about most regimes in the world today, in frankly, any part of the world, and think about how media, whether it's news or movies or sponsored influencers, are used by dishonest leaders for dishonest gain. It might be easy for us to see when it's over there someplace, but do not be deceived. This happens everywhere in our Western world, feel free to consider how supposed advancements in social awareness go hand-in-hand with virtue signaling through social media campaigns. These are often on issues that directly challenge biblical Christian teaching, yet you've likely seen or felt that strong pressure to conform. Whether that's adding an overlay on your profile picture or sharing a hashtag on your status, things we might be tempted to write off as harmless, but we know really aren't. Trends are often pushed by social media influencers, but ultimately are connected to larger scale, political, educational, or culture-shaping agendas. And when you refuse to participate, you run the risk of being noticed, called out at work, school, or by your friend group. Wherever the first beast is, the second beast is right there, putting in work, deceiving, convincing, influencing, and ultimately attacking God's people so, those are the two beasts grotesque villains that disguise themselves as pious heroes, but who ultimately seek domination at the expense of God's kingdom. The first bringing violent oppression, the second bringing powerful deception. They aren't individual beings. But from John's time until Christ's return, these two beasts symbolize every dictator, tyrant, propagandist, charlatan cult leader, and whoever else seeks to blaspheme God by asserting their own totalitarian domination in opposition to the rightful rule of Christ. But where does that leave us? The beasts are here. They've been here and will continue to be here. They're violent, powerful, and very effective in doing what they seek to do. So what's the message for Christians? Our passage actually calls on us to do two important things. But first, let's set the scene a little. Follow with me as I read verses five to eight again. And the beast was given a mouth to utter haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. Notice something here. Notice how the beast is allowed to do everything it does. It was allowed to exercise authority. It was allowed to make war on the saints. Throughout all of this, the beast still himself is under the authority of our God. Before it is able to exercise its authority, make war, blaspheme, do anything it does, God has to allow it. Our God is in control. And this is proven in verse eight, when we read that everyone will worship the beast, except those whose names before the foundation of the world itself, were written in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Our God is in control, and God's people can rest knowing their souls are safe in His hands throughout any violence, persecution, or deception launched against them by the beast. That's good news, that's amazing news, but that still leaves us with the reality that we will face persecution and deception. So what do we do with that? We know persecution won't separate us from God. That's powerfully affirmed in Romans 8. Many of you will know the passage. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword separate us from the love of Christ? No, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But as Romans 8 says, and our passage today confirms, that persecution will still come. So how do we respond? Verses nine to 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Endure saints. Be of faith, people of God. This passage reminds us that we are in a war, and in a war there are casualties. Our enemies are strong, powerful, and we now know what to expect. Expect violence, war, conquest. The first beast will demand worship. But do not give in. If they come to imprison you, go to prison. If they come to kill you, be killed. That's the war. But endure in hope. Endure in faith. Our God is in control. Our names are written in the Book of the Lamb and that cannot be undone. You know what's coming in this life, but more importantly, you know what's coming in the next. Endure. Be of faith. And remember, suffering is not without purpose. As it says in James 1, 2 to 3, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Suffering builds strength. Suffering is an opportunity to rely on God, to live for Him. When the beasts come, endure. Be of faith. But when they come, when they attack, when they seek to deceive, be wise. Look at verse 18. This calls for wisdom. Let the one... let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six, six, six. The deceptions and pressures of the beast calls us to wisdom. We now know the beasts will be relentless in their ploys. They will have great signs and miracles to go with their false claims and quests for dominance. We must recognize them, and we could do that by being discerning. There may be many ways that Bible scholars have suggested to interpret 666, the number of the beast, but one compelling way is to see this number as a symbol of falling short in every way. Seven is the number of completion, wholeness, and the beast is 666, which misses the mark every time. When people come with their claims, even when they're backed by powerful signs and fancy arguments, do they measure up to the word? Do they stand against who we know our God truly is? Be wise, think critically, let no one deceive you in any way. We know who the beasts are. We know what they want and how they will seek to accomplish it. Measure their actions, recognize them for who they are, and identify how they fall short in every way. The best way to recognize how the beasts fall short in every way is to know the one of whom they fall short. The dragon and the beasts form a false trinity. Get to know the true trinity, the only divinity, the true God worthy of all worship and praise. And to start, I invite you to take in the story of Jesus Christ, the second person of the trinity, God who took on flesh and walked among us. Read the gospel accounts. The beasts are the villains we face, but Jesus is the hero we need. 2,000 years ago, Jesus himself stared down the beasts. Herod and Pilate were corrupt political leaders of dominating kingdoms, manifestations of the first beast. Jesus faced their persecution, endured in faith unto death against their violent oppression. But more than that, Jesus confronted the scribes and Pharisees, powerful, influential religious leaders, clear manifestations of the second beast. Jesus wisely recognized their deceptions and never gave in. He responded with the word. Jesus faced the beasts and he did so perfectly. So perfectly that by his life and death, we too might know victory against these grotesque, vile beasts who seek to dominate the world. Jesus is the one they seek to parody. Jesus is the one they blaspheme and aim to usurp but Jesus is the one who was, is, and will be victorious over them. If you do not know Jesus today, get to know him. He's the hero, the one who would save your soul rather than devour it. As our passage today teaches us, there are two options, your name in Jesus's book or your total subjugation to the beast. I implore you, choose Jesus. Turn from your sin. Embrace the savior you need and the one who is truly worthy of your worship. Reject the beasts. They might look nice at first, but they only seek to oppress and deceive you. If you are one of Jesus' people already, praise God. Today you learned what faces you. You learned how to recognize it, confront it, and move through it. Endure. Do not be deceived. Like Lotso from Toy Story, the beasts will try to be your friends, but will ultimately seek to destroy you. Recognize their attacks when they come. Remain strong in the faith. In this war, your soul is safe with our God who is in control. You serve Christ, the Lamb. Fix your eyes upon him. Rest in his gospel victory and follow after his perfect example. Fight this war with faithfulness, wisdom, humility gentleness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words that you have given us, these words which inform us of the battle we face. We ask that as we think about the beasts, that we do not be intimidated. You have given us this instruction so that we might have hope. We know who the beasts are. We can recognize them. We can endure faithfully and uh, face them wisely, but ultimately we do so not under our own power, not trusting in our own strength, but knowing there is the lamb the one who was victorious the one who is victorious we look forward to his victory and we rest in what he gives us father give us strength give us wisdom and help us to trust in jesus at all times in his name we pray amen i pray that this message has been an encouragement to do, to you that you will think about this passage and that you will be able to recognize the beast and ultimately see the superiority and beautiful nature of Jesus Christ. Anyway, if this has helped, please share it with a friend. And as always, for more messages of hope, please visit us at www.gracebc.ca. Thank you and God bless.